I'm Laura Coates, and this is CNN Tonight. And as they say, with, what, 98 days to go into the midterm elections, which is like tomorrow or a long ways away, depending on how you view politics, it's election night in America once again. The polls are now closed in Michigan, in Kansas, and parts of Arizona. Five states have primaries today, including key battlegrounds that could shape the race for which party will be the majority. Democrats once again, or Republicans yet again. No, Donald Trump is not on the ballot, that's true, but he is casting a pretty big shadow as he continues to endorse some. It's not always clear, I might add, who he is endorsing, but more on that in just a moment. And the timing is going to be pretty interesting here. I mean, this isn't just post-January 6th. It's post the first series of January 6th hearings. We're about to see whether it actually impacted voters and in which way it did. It hasn't seemed to impact the platforms, though, of candidates in several swing states. Some continue to echo the baseless fraud claims, and there's a whole slate of them in Arizona who are running for top positions like governor and attorney general, secretary of state, and Senate, you know, consequential office holders for those who maybe are running elections. Also being closely watched, the Senate race in Missouri. Trump's endorsed an Eric. Okay, but, but which Eric did you mean to endorse, sir? Rivals Eric Greitens and Eric Schmidt, well, they both claim that Trump meant them. And Trump, for his part, really has yet to clarify. I mean, even now, on election night, and it seems to be causing a lot of chaos and some confusion into an already tumultuous race. Meanwhile, you got the fates of a trio of Republicans who voted to impeach then-President Trump over the insurrection. And their seats, well, they hang in the balance tonight. Let's get the latest from CNN's chief national correspondent and anchor of Inside Politics. John King is at the magic wall. Look, John, polls have already closed in Missouri. So what can you tell us about the race there? Uh, one of the Eric's, Laura, is leading uh, in the Senate Republican primary. That would be the state attorney general, Eric Schmidt. Only about 4% of the vote counted, so we need to count a lot of votes tonight. Uh, but Eric Schmidt, one of the Eric's, is leading with 40% of the vote, 41% if you round up. Congresswoman uh, Vicki Hartzler in second with 27%. Eric Greitens, the former governor who resigned in disgrace and amid scandal, is running a distant third at the moment at 17.2%. But again, a long way to go in the vote count. You see a lot of yellow here. That's Congresswoman Hartzler. She's a Republican congresswoman, Laura. This is about where her district is out here. Some of these counties are out of her district, these to the south, these to the east. But the chunk of them right here, that's her congressional district. So she's running strong at home, if you will. Uh, but a long way to go as we count the votes here. That we're even talking about this race is what is significant. And that this is a Republican-held seat. Roy Blunt is retiring. Republicans should hold it in November. Uh, Democrats think it's possible if Republicans have all that chaos you're talking about. It's possible to keep an eye on this one. But we'll keep counting votes. I mean, who knew that the name Eric was the new share, John King? You only have a one name now. That's the new thing. It's a new fad. I'm setting it up here. You also have three congressional Republicans who voted to impeach Trump. They're facing primary challenges tonight. How are things looking for them? So let's bring up the state of Michigan, where we have some votes in one of those races. Two of them are out in Washington State. We don't get those results till later. But right here, let me come right in here, just Grand Rapids, Michigan area right here. Again, results are early, only about 5% of the vote in. But Peter Meyer is the incumbent. He is one of 10 House Republicans who voted to impeach Donald Trump. Donald Trump has vowed to exact ve his vengeance on him. Trump endorsed John Gibbs, the challenger, who has 63% of the vote at the moment. You see a little about, about 1,000 votes ahead. Again, this is only 5% of the vote, so we have a long way to count. But as you watch this, district fill in Republicans around the country, country watching this tonight to see even after the January 6th hearings, even out after all this damning testimony from Donald Trump's own aides and allies about that he knew it was a lie, uh, do Republicans still want to punish those who voted to impeach him? We'll keep counting. 
John King, stay close. Glad to have you here. And here to help us pack all this in and put it onto perspective are former Democratic Congresswoman Abby Finkenauer, also CNN senior political analyst Ron Brownstein, and former special assistant to George W. Bush, Scott Jennings. We've got like we've got Iowa, we've got California, we've got yeah. Kentucky. Yeah. This is a focus group in and of itself. <laughs> People pay to have these moments here. So let's talk about this moment here. First of all, I wonder, I mean, what does it say that Trump still casts this very large shadow. Does, are his endorsements really that impactful? I wonder sometimes, are we giving him too much credit? Do we over-talk about the influence he may have? I know the Eric thing is funny, but is it oversized? I think it's most impactful in multi-candidate primaries. If you've looked where he's had the biggest amount of movement in candidacies, take Ohio, for example, where J.D. Vance was sort of in third or fourth mm-hmm. place, and he came in late and I think, delivered the nomination in Ohio to J.D. Vance. So in Missouri, he's endorsed one Eric or the other, or maybe both of them. Uh, and, and it's likely, I think, uh, Schmidt uh, will win. We'll see. we got a lot of votes right. yet to count. Don't want to over-speculate while we're counting them. But, uh, but he'll obviously want to claim, claim credit for that. Same thing in Arizona, multi-candidate field. And he obviously came in for Blake Masters. So I think he does cast a big shadow. It's most helpful in bigger primaries mm-hmm. where you've got lots of candidates and people are trying to sort out. Because a lot of these, you know, and Ron knows. Yeah. You know, you've run. Uh, in these big primaries. And you've it, won, uh, by the yeah. way. I'm going to give you the credit. You've but, run but, and you've won. But in party primaries, a lot of the candidates all saying the same thing. You know, same issue, same talk. So when somebody comes in that people trust or think they trust and says, this is my person, it, it can make a big difference. I have a very serious question for you, Ron. I want to know which, which Eric do we think he was endorsing? I mean, I have a full screen here. I think these are the different people who it possibly could be. And I'm wondering, which of these people do you think... <laughs> It must be, is it Eric Holder? Is it Eric Carver? I'm just, yeah. It could be any one of yeah. them. Clapton? Eric Church yeah. up there? Eric Church is up there. We're doing them all. Uh, he, uh, he hedged his bets. You know, <laughs> the, the, the point... I couldn't help it. You know, to, to Scott's point, I, you know, I think looking at Trump's personal win-loss uh, record is the wrong metric because it's not only his like tap on the shoulder it's the fact that he has reconfigured the republican coalition mm-hmm. over these last 6 years in a direction that makes it more likely for trump style candidates to win the party is more dependent on the kind of voters who respond to a trump appeal culturally conservative non-urban non-college older evangelical voters and the kind of white collar culturally moderate economically conservative mm-hmm. voters have been drifting away from the party so the entire baseline I mean, it's not only who Trump is endorsing, it's who is endorsing him. There are very few candidates anywhere in the country that are running and saying the party has got to move away from him. And I know Scott and I have, have, have argued about this before. But the entire baseline has moved in a Trump direction. And that has implications not only for the primaries, but as we'll talk about in a minute, for the general elections as well. Yeah, uh, that's exactly right. And what I'm thinking about is less his impact on these particular candidates And more so just his impact on the Republican Party and what it says now about the Republican Party that these are who your people are. I mean, regardless of which Eric we're talking about Mm -hmm. in Missouri, they're both pretty terrible. I mean, they both believe the election was stolen. They believe, you know, in conspiracies and lies and they peddle them for their own personal gain. And that is who the Republican Party sadly is. Is now you know on that point I want you I want to play what Carrie Lake had to say about the idea of um, pushing the baseless claims. It's kind of a page out of what Trump said here you know more than a year ago now about the idea of if I should lose, here's what happened. The only way they can win is if they load up the voter rolls with dead people, people who've moved, and imaginary friends. 
So when you hear that, of course, it's a bit of a deja vu. But the real issue to me as well, and Abby, this is your point about this is who the Republicans are. Yeah. I do wonder if that's going to backfire on for Democratic voters or for Republican voters in the long run. Because it, there was a time not too many years ago when it was... I need you to have a platform mm -hmm. and I'm going to go towards the platform as opposed to I'm going to go towards not voting for someone in particular. And I wonder if the focus is consistently on, look, these are the Republicans is who they are, as opposed to Democrats. Are you going to talk about the economy? Are you going to talk about the issues that matter to people? I mean, is that a real concern? Well, look, I mean, Democrats, you can have policy differences in a platform. But what we're talking about when we're talking about the Republican Party platform, they're literally changing it like in states in Arizona, where if you don't essentially believe that Trump won the election, you're not a Republican anymore. Mm. There is a very big difference there. And again, it is really horrifying to watch this continue to happen. And it's going to be on Democrats. Do we educate voters enough to talk about how extreme this is and where these folks have gone? Because it's not attached to reality anymore. And that's a terrifying thing. We already have people in elected office who believe in these conspiracies who are not attached to reality. And are we going to have more people like that elected? And what does that mean for the future of our democracy if they are? I want to ask you, Scott, about reality, but you just told me that you uh, you have a pet pig now. So I'm yeah. not really, <laughs> I don't know how tethered we are to reality in this moment in time, but I'm, it's real. But I, I'm giving you a hard time, but it's a cute story. But seriously, <laughs> when I think about reality, it, I mean, is she right? Well, I mean, my rebuttal to that is, Republicans would argue that Democrats aren't tethered to reality on the economy. I mean, they're passing a bill right now in the in the in the Congress. There's a difference. It says here. it says we, we're going to reduce. It says we're going to we're going to reduce inflation. Oh, act on. that doesn't reduce come inflation. On, We've on. got tax increases now identifying as tax cuts or something. I mean, they're they're not tethered to reality no. on the issues that matter to most people. We're everything talking she, about everything she democracy just said, here and just facts right. about an election. Right. We're talking about facts here, not policy differences. Just yeah. you know cold-hearted facts about an election. You're not, you're you not know, terribly right. familiar with my views on, <laughs> on this. And there's a big difference, by the way, no, no, no. between and Eric Schmidt and Eric well, Rice. Look, but the reality but Eric, is, yes. this Eric election Schmidt is about the, this election is about the, the country. country. I hear, I wanna, hold on. I want to so hear all of you. It's important yeah. the audience says as well. So, but I want to, you, you poll in this all the right. time. So what look, what I mean, is the reality in the polls? I, look, by most objective measures, this should be a very rough election for Democrats. The first midterm is always tough. 9% uh, inflation has not been the case in 40 years. The president approval's rating is 40%. That's a lot of headwinds working at Democrats. But I will say as a declarative statement, if Democrats avoid the worst in November, especially in Senate and governor's races, it will be because of what we are seeing tonight, which is that Republicans have the potential to nominate too many mm -hmm. candidates who simply are not good fits, can't compete, in, particularly in the white-collar suburbs that have been moving away from the party in 2018 and 2020. They have the potential to have a, a, a slate in Arizona and in Michigan that is going to be relatively easy to portray as extreme up and down. Now, they, they may get through anyway. I mean, the underlying current is such that some of these candidates who are out of the mainstream are probably going to win. But Republicans are making it much tougher on themselves than it might have been by nominating some of these candidates who I think are going to be very hard sells in places like Maricopa County, 
Oakland County, uh, Michigan, the suburbs of, Penn, of Philadelphia. That is a consistent pattern, and it is linked to Trump's influence in the party. Let me ask you, how does abortion rate in these conversations? Uh, very much. very. Is it galvanizing? Is yeah. it out, you think? Look, Even I mean, though it's a settled issue at this point? It, it's, but, but in these settled. states, it is not settled. Right. And also there's the issue of what's going to happen at the national level. No, there's no, like I said, if Democrats avoid the worst in November, it will be primarily, I think, principally because Republicans continue to lose ground in white-collar suburbs, and abortion is a big part of that. It's helping Democrats recap. There were a lot of center-right, white-collar voters who voted for Biden in 20 because they didn't like Trump, have been disillusioned with Biden's performance, were open to Republicans, and are now moving back because of the confluence of issues like abortions, guns, January 6th, and the nature of some of these candidates. Now, 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 do, the, now do the Hispanic voters in Texas and yeah, Nevada, because right? you've got whole other blocks of the electorate sure. that, are, that went for Democrats huge in 16, 18, and 20 that are moving towards the Republican uh, Party. Uh, so mm. you're, you're, you're right. We do have a realignment, but it doesn't all benefit no, the No, no, you're right. You're right. I'm glad, you, I'm glad you validated him before he went back to California. That, <laughs> yes. was, that was a tender moment. That was nice. <laughs> that was a nice moment. Ron Brownstein, thank you. Thank Everyone, you. Scott, Abby, stick with us. We'll be Ooh. right back. There are brand new developments tonight on missing text messages sent on or around January 6th. Go figure. But not from Secret Service phone members. No, no. Why were phones wiped of key Pentagon officials? Mm. Yes, it's true. CNN First is next. The trail of deleted January 6th texts, well, they now stretch all the way to the Pentagon. CNN was first to report on court documents showing that phones of several key Trump aides were apparently wiped at the end of the administration. Now, we know specifically Secretary of Defense Chris Miller, former Chief of Staff Cash Patel, and former Secretary of the Army Ryan McCarthy were among the officials whose phones were wiped. All are considered key witnesses to January 6th. DOD, DOD is just the latest department unable to suddenly find text messages from that day. We know the texts of multiple Secret Service agents were also deleted. Homeland Security also can't seem to find texts of the acting security secretary and his top deputy. That's in addition to a seven-hour gap in the White House call logs. Same for the White House diary on January 6th. Well, then there are the reports of documents being burned by the White House chief of staff. Flushed documents found clogging the White House toilet, or torn up so that they had to be taped back together, preferably not after they were in the toilet, because I would feel bad for the person to do that. But you know, boxes of classified documents were also sent to Mar-a-Lago instead of where they're supposed to be sent. It's called the National Archives. I'm joined now by a digital forensic investigator, Gary Kessler, who I'm glad to speak with right now. Gary, I'm so glad you're here because... While people are wondering where these messages have gone and, oh, they're just gone, they've gone poof into the ether, I'm always wondering, is there a way to get it back? Are these really gone or are they gone for now? Because when you delete a text message, they don't really go away fully, right? Well, um, it depends how efficiently the wiping was done, if, if in fact, wiping is the correct term. So um, on a cell phone, as you just observed with your question, if all you do is delete a message, then the message is somewhere still on the phone. And even if it's not accessible to the user of the uh, text message app, 
for example, there's still fragments and, and snippets of the message, again, probably somewhere on the phone, although they can be difficult to find unless you have the right tools. Now, on the other hand, if they truly wiped the phone, um, the most effective way to do that is, of course, Android phones and iPhones for the last at least five years. Um, the operating systems are automatically encrypted and there's a decryption key in the system area of the memory of the phone. So the most effective way to wipe all the user data is go into the system area and delete the decryption key. And then it doesn't matter what's in the user area. It's never going to be retrievable. So what you describe would have to be an intentional act. Is that a common thing to have done with somebody? Is it more likely in the work that you've done that people are just sort of deleting it on their phone thinking, you know, they can't actually see it? Is it difficult to go in in the wiping as you're talking about? And do you know if that's what's normally done in the course of a change in administration? Well, I, I can't speak at all to um, what what the administration might do. In in the work that I've done, when some usually you have somebody who is not terribly sophisticated, and they're just trying, they're just deleting messages, and and very frequently we can get them back either from the phone or we can get them back from say an iTunes backup or a cloud backup or something like that. If in fact, um, I wanna reissue a phone, and that's been one of the comments that's been made, um, you would possibly wanna wipe the phone so that no remnants of the old user continue on with the new user. And so yes, it's a deliberate act in that it's purposeful. It is not necessarily a nefarious action. That's an important distinction, and we should note that we don't have information yet that this is somehow nefarious. But the idea of sort of the, the details of how one were to do this, I think, is fascinating because just the idea of, of, of deleting it versus wiping is going to be the key inquiry going forward. Gary Kessler, thank you for your expertise. Thank you. I want to turn now to Miles Taylor, who is chief of staff at Homeland Security during the Trump administration, and also Elliot Williams, who served at both the DOJ and the DHS. So, Miles, Elliot, um, he made a good note, moment there. The idea of, look, just because you delete it doesn't mean it's nefarious or wiping it. It could be a part of the course of things. However, this sort of notion of all these coincidences, I mean, at some point, if it walks like a duck and it talks like a duck... I mean, quack, quack. So where are we right now? I'm, look, we all know this. If you delete a text message, it's kind of a sketchy behavior. So that right away is a red flag. And, and, and when I just heard him speaking, I mean, what stood out to me is that we were talking about wiping. You were talking about flushing things, you know, down the toilet. One thing is clear. In the Trump administration, there was not good preservation of records. It's clear procedures weren't followed. And this is a problem. However, I will caveat this by saying when I saw the news about DOD today, I started to think that this is less a big criminal conspiracy and more a culture of incompetence. Absolutely. You have these senior officials who turn in their phones, they kind of just wipe them, they put them away. The presidential records provisions have not kept up with the 21st century. I'm actually more interested not in the text messages of these senior officials, but in their depositions. 
What were these people doing? Mm. And we need to start interviewing them and getting those records. Also, has anyone asked for their personal phones? I knew a lot of people in government used their personal phones for this. And Elliot, I'd be interested in your take on on whether they're asking for their personal text. And it's an official record if you're conducting government business on your personal phone. Look, it's not just incompetence, but this idea, and we would have both seen it at the Department of Homeland Security. A lot of these folks believe they are the the men on the wall saving America from tyranny and, and utter ruin. And the idea that investigators from Congress or the Justice Department can go poking around your emails or your text messages is just, just offensive to them. And so, of course, we're going to delete our things. Now, the problem is, for it to be a crime, there has to be an investigation. There's got to be, you know, uh, a subpoena or something like that. And as of January 6th on that day, investigations, criminal investigations hadn't really been opened yet. And so, it's you, you know, you're going to have a hard time right now, based on the information we have, charging any of those folks with obstruction of justice. I mean, that's true. Yeah. And I and I, I note that. But the same token, I feel like there's something odd about a moment where most people were yes. watching and it was essentially like frozen, like almost like a mosquito in amber. Oh, watching Jurassic Park. The idea of thinking about that, and those are the days that you don't think to preserve. I mean, I want to hear, play for you what the yeah. Attorney General Merrick Garland to say about this issue. He was asked about whether he was concerned about the missing messages. Here's what he had to say. Are you concerned about the missing text, though? I mean, it, is that something that's on? I don't, I don't want to talk about particular cases. We with respect to our own investigations, we will pursue all facts far as we need to pursue them, and we'll pursue them with all the tools we have under the criminal law. So one of those tools, of course, are the inspectors general. Yeah. I mean, at this point, I'm not, I'm not always focused, although I'm a prosecutor, I'm not always yeah. focused on the only end game is criminal prosecution. Sometimes it's the investigation to find out what happened, if things. How do you feel about the IGs overlooking at this right now? Oh, so heads need to roll, let's be okay. clear. Even if people aren't charged with crimes. Individuals have been fired or resigned from their jobs for far less than this. I think it was 2012, the head of the General Services Administration, GSA, resigned because they used government funds to hire a clown. Literally, and this is this is far more nefarious and terrible than well, that. Well, Miles so, is afraid of clowns. And so you brought, <laughs> yeah, it's, it's now, it's now I triggering. I may have hired <laughs> a couple. Let's not make it about clowns. Look, let's not make it about clowns. I'm conflicted about clowns. They make me happy. But, you know, I'm a little frightened of them, too. But, but needless to say, you can lose your job for that. You ought to lose your job for overseeing the, destruct- the possible destruction of but, evidence. But I got a key into something yeah. that Elliot said earlier. Again, if on your personal device you sent an official communication, then that official well, what does communication that mean, should official be preserved. Like, well, does that let's mean think back I'm in talking time. to a colleague yeah. what? did what? Hillary Clinton get knocked for for years and years and years? The emails, the emails. Why were they knocking her for the emails? Because they were on a private email address. The thing that I think, in fact, I've heard no one talking about this yet, is I know some of these government officials were conducting official business via text messages because it's what they used to do during the administration. Let me send this Word document to my uh, personal email so I can work on it at home. That becomes a government record even if you're using your Gmail. But does that mean the entire phone becomes the record that can be obtained validly by the government, or does that mean the record itself? Because that's the is it is it text by text will go through? Is it page by page? And if everything's gone already, how do you begin? It's a great question. Look, it was widespread practice in that administration to use encrypted message apps to communicate. People were using that. I'm not saying that we know for sure that senior officials during January 6th were doing that. All I'm saying is that, uh, you know, if people are really worried about private email being used for official business, 
text messages, which we're looking at now, absolutely were between senior officials, and, and that should be something that is probed in this instance. Look, you it, wonder, go ahead. Look, it might, it might be lawful, but it's awful, literally. It's conduct, and to use a cute little catchphrase, but it's conduct that even if you can't be charged with a crime for it, even if maybe you can't lose your job for it, our government should not be engaged in, full stop. Awful and lawful. Your new bumper sticker. Look at that. I, love I, mean, <laughs> I mean, we we covered clowns. We've got a whole thing. We're rhyming now. This is this is a beautiful Tuesday. We've it's Tuesday, right? I it's election know. night in America. Of course, it's Tuesday. You weren't listening to John King, Miles Taylor. Thank you, Elliot. Stick with us as well. Up ahead, one of the country's most popular music festivals has just been canceled. Music Midtown in Atlanta called off this year in a decision likely linked to gun laws. We'll take on the contours with the president of the Atlanta City Council next. Fallout Boy, My Chemical Romance, Future, and Jack White. Those are just a few of the headline performances that tens of thousands of music fans had hoped to see at next month's iconic Music Midtown Festival in Atlanta. Organizers, however, abruptly called the event off just yesterday, citing circumstances beyond their control. No more details were offered, but sources say that Georgia's gun laws are what's to blame. There's one law in particular that allows firearms to be permitted in public spaces, and that includes parks, I might add, which gun advocates say conflicts with the festival's weapons ban. Joining me now is Doug Shipman, president of the Atlanta City Council. Doug, thank you for being here this evening. For people maybe just learning about this for the first time, it's quite the intersection between what the gun laws are doing and saying and the impact possibly on entertainment, on the economy. What's the issue here? That the festival, a private entity, wanted to ban weapons and the Georgia laws said, nope, bring the weapons. It's You're entitled to do so in a public space. Is that it? So we've had uh, consistent laws that have been opening up uh, the access to guns, the ability to carry guns in various spaces. There was a 2019 Georgia Supreme Court ruling that basically said on private property and on long-term leased public property, you could have weapons restrictions, but on public property, you could not. And so in this case, the music festival doesn't have a long-term lease. It's there for a couple of days mm. uh, to have the event. And there was a concern that there would be legal jeopardy because of the restrictions against any restrictions on public spaces. And they can't contract away that requirement or that that ability to bring it in. They can't say as part of like an entertainer's rider, look, there can't be weapons. That's enough to trump this. So I came out of the entertainment industry before I was in elected office. There are often riders from artists. There are also insurance issues related to mm-hmm. security plans. And I said so th- those things did not uh, have any impact on the state law and This state law has been written in a way that limits local officials from being able to make more restrictive laws. So in essence, the state has said, we're going to make the law and you can't change it at the local level. There's one other issue here. More recently this year, we also have a permitless carry law that passed in Georgia. So the proliferation of those who can carry without a license, without training has expanded. So also the fact that you couldn't have a uh, restriction on weapons also in a situation where we know there are more guns that people are carrying around naturally, I think led to a lot of questions around liability. 
I mean, it's hard to think about this in a vacuum, right? We know what happened in that horrible, tragic Las Vegas shootings that took place. There was a music festival going on. There were concerts happening. So there is the natural concern that one would obviously think of. And there's also the economic notion here. I mean, there, I mean the, the cancellation, the, um, it means a $50 million loss, they believe, to the Atlanta economy, according to some reports about this. It was supposed to take place next, in, next month. It featured 30-plus artists. It was going to host local food venues. What is the impact of this economically? And does this forebode harsher conditions going forward in the sense that this might make people say, well, let's not go to Atlanta. I mean, even the North Carolina governor just tweeted out in response to what's going on. He tweeted out a reaction to this very notion saying, come on up to North Carolina. We're ready to welcome you to one of our amazing outdoor spaces to help you host a fun and safe festival. When you see this and what it could mean for the economy and for businesses or entertainment going elsewhere, what's your reaction? It is a major concern. Uh, There was a study done a few years ago that you cited $20 million in direct spending, $30 million in indirect economic impact. This festival hosted 50,000 people uh, a day for two days. We know that people come nationally for it. It's a major uh, uh, festival that's been going on for 25 years, but it's not the only one. We have a festival called Shaky Knees that happens in another park. We have one called Sweetwater 420 Fest that happens in another park. And so this may not be the only festival that uh, can no longer happen in a public space. They might be able to find a private space, but we don't have a large outdoor private space that really makes sense like some other cities. And so it may have to move out of the city. And so these economic ramifications are significant in big dollars, but they're also, as you pointed out, very significant on small businesses, a lot of locally owned food trucks, small businesses, folks connected to our music industry, which is a very vital part of what we do Mm -hmm. will be impacted. And I would say one more thing, and and the the tweet that you pointed out, we know we're always in competition with other cities like Austin and Miami, Nashville for music and for economic development more broadly. And I do have a concern that people are going to maybe not even bring new things that could be coming here because of what they're seeing. So I think the economic ramifications could be quite extensive and could be much larger than just the Midtown music cancellation. But will it shape policy? I mean, I wonder, are you hearing from your constituents and the voters and the electorate more broadly in Georgia in reaction to this? Has there been some backlash in, in, in resulting this? Well, this festival is really focused on young people, but it's also one that a lot of us have attended over the years who have been in Atlanta. It's really one of those memory maker kinds of moments. So I have been hearing from folks that are quite upset. Uh, We do have an election here for state legislature, governor, other constitutional offices. So I'm hopeful that no matter who's elected next January, when our state legislature comes back into session, that we'll really look at the implications of this policy, whether it was an intended or an unintended consequence. Clearly, there are economic implications. And so there are ways. We know we have gun restrictions in airports and stadiums and other private venues. We certainly could have a carve out for ticketed events, for large events, for music festivals. I hope that we'll look at those policies because this is going to damage the Atlanta economy going forward. No question about it. I wonder if it's going to be the blueprint, too, for other states who may have similar conflicts and for entertainers to think about that and where they choose to go and, of course, where they spend their money and, of course, the overarching concern of safety at the core. Doug Shipman, thank you so much. Thanks for having me. Look, it's now tomorrow in Taiwan. We're going to take you live to the other side of the world for the very latest on the storm over House Speaker Nancy Pelosi's historic visit. China is still threatening retaliation. 
An update on the flaring tensions will be next. Just minutes ago, House Speaker Nancy Pelosi gave a historic address before Taiwan's parliament. She's now meeting with Taiwan's president. And in making this trip, Pelosi defied hesitation from the White House and also threats of retaliation from China. In her address, Pelosi spoke of America's friendship with Taiwan, and she pledged more cooperation. Here with you now with more is CNN senior international correspondent Will Ripley, who's always on the story. Tell us what you know. Well, you know, we are just uh, like everybody else watching very closely to see how uh, Nancy Pelosi, the Speaker of the House, sec- you know, second in line to the U.S. presidency, is received here in Taiwan. And so far, it has been a very warm welcome, even though the Taiwanese government was pretty much radio silence before her plane landed. Once it did, uh, Taipei 101 lit up with a welcome message. Uh, she, as you said, she's meeting with President Tsai Ing-wen. She also had a chance to meet earlier with members of Taiwan's parliament, where she gave a speech and she talked about the reasons why she's here and really in stark contrast to what we're seeing right now from mainland China with these military exercises happening just off the shore. Listen. We come in friendship to Taiwan. We come in peace for the region. And our vice chair, our chair of the, the Veterans Affairs Committee, Mr. Takano, representing our veterans, understanding the value of peace and the avoidance of conflict. Pelosi made it very clear that her, the reason why she's here is to, is to show solidarity with the island of Taiwan, which has been under an increasing amount of intimidation, both militarily, diplomatically, and economically from mainland China, Laura. There's been a lot of conversation around that trip, as you well know. And I, there was that piece she wrote in the Washington Post as well, talking about why she was there. But you mentioned the flight, and we see images of her you know, landing. And speaking of that flight, there's some new reporting that CNN has about that flight to Taiwan. What did you learn? Yeah, I mean, that's a flight that I've taken myself. And normally, if you're, if you're flying the normal direct route, it's only about four and a half hours. It's, under, it's at least under a five-hour flight uh, for sure. And that's how long it would normally take. But Speaker Pelosi's flight took more than seven hours, according to CNN reporting. And the reason for that is uh, they were trying to avoid potentially uh, this. I, mean, I don't know if we have the map handy or not, but the six locations uh, around uh, the island of Taiwan where there are military drills that have been taking place since the overnight hours here shortly after Speaker Pelosi arrived. These military drills, some of them so close to the shore that it's, it's possible that people living along the coast could actually hear them. Uh, and certainly if, if uh, anybody were to, use, uh, to try to head out in the water a little bit closer to these drills, they'd find a large amount uh, of activity, which is very you know, uh, provocative, certainly, especially because some of these drills, the coordinates that they were released by the People's Liberation Army might have actually, uh, actually gone into Taiwan's territorial airspace. Now, we don't know if that has happened. We don't know if that's going to be publicized by the Taiwan uh, military and the Defense Department if it does happen, because, you know, they certainly don't want to dial up the tension here. And and they've 
actually been uncharacteristically quiet when talking about these latest provocations, even though usually, Laura, they tell us, you know, two times a day how many planes have flown into Taiwan's self-declared air defense identification zone. But I think the strategy from the Taiwan side is to keep everything as, as, as low-key as possible, even while they try to show uh, Nancy Pelosi around and hope that the experiences that she has here she'll take back to Washington and they'll help shape American policy if and when the time comes that, that China does make a military move on Taiwan. Well, they may be uncharacteristically characteristically quiet, but you know who is not, and that's Speaker Pelosi. I hope that she addresses the idea of why there was the diversion, if there's a broader issue at stake. Will Ripley, thank you so much. We'll be right back. Look, they don't call her Queen Bee for nothing. Beyonce's new album, Renaissance, is already breaking chart records, but it's also buzzing with controversy. A song on the album called Heated is being criticized for including an ableist slur. Listen. Disability rights activists say the word spaz, which was used in that particular lyric, is offensive towards people living with spastic cerebral palsy. According to the CDC, people with spastic cerebral palsy have increased muscle tone. This means their muscles are stiff, and as a result, their movements can be awkward. A rep for Beyonce tells CNN she's updating the song. The word, saying, quote, the word not used intentionally in a harmful way will be replaced. Abby, Elliot, and Scott are back with me right now. And I should say the person most excited to talk about Beyonce is Scott Jennings in a, an <laughs> odd revelation of sorts. But I, I, I bring this up because, look, and it can be uncomfortable at times to talk about the things that people react to, that have visceral reaction, that can lead to what we know as the so-called cancel culture of things. Mm. And Lizzo just changed a lyric as well. It's not unheard of for people to be enlightened that the use of a term yeah. is offensive and to no longer use it. But I think you put it best, Elliot, the idea of, look, sometimes you get the information, you realize that it's offensive, and what you do then is up to you. Yeah. No, I agree. Language evolves over time. Oh, okay. You're, I'm going to give you the floor for no, a I'm, moment. No, I'm I listening. Hear, you, yeah, you had, you had a smirk. We knew you were like, no, oh, I'm listening. More. Ready to pounce on this. No, I want to hear you defend the thought police. I'm not defending the thought police. Okay, well, let me, let me use a better example uh, okay. for you. The state song of Kentucky, my old Kentucky home, for 130 years had the word darkies in it until, over time, people realized this is not language that we in a civil society ought to be using, and they changed it. And I think there ought to be room for people to recognize that, you know what, I've grown my whole life saying the word spaz, but, but you know, maybe that's not language that we ought to be using. It doesn't take anything away from any of us to purge the word spaz from our vocabulary. You can still use most of the English language. So my question is, how are you affected by it? Uh, well, I think we're all affected when people who are creative artists, yeah. Beyonce, one of the most renowned artists in our culture, one of the most talented people that alive today, when they have to go around policing their artistic expression because they may, might possibly offend a handful of people. I'm not denigrating these people that have the disease. I, I don't, not at all. But it's obvious she was not intending to hurt, harm, or offend anyone. Did. And and I'm just saying, when you start bending over for the speech police on one small issue, the floodgates are open. And how are you going to have artists expressing themselves if they're constantly calibrating against these people who are sort of professional, you know, professionally being offended by everything? Abby, what's your yeah, thought? You know, I, I hate calling it the speech police here. What we're talking about are 
you know, disability advocates. And when you look at where the term comes from, spastic cerebral palsy, I mean, I think there are a lot of folks who don't understand that or even know where that comes from. But now that you do and you're hearing from these advocates, we should listen, right? And we should have respect for that. I mean, heck, you watch, there are so many things that you look back and go, oh man, that didn't age well. Even something like Gilmore Girls, right? Like the first season of that, you have Rory using the R word and just very nonchalantly. And I watch that now and I go, oh my goodness, you know, this this should not be happening. But it did because once you learned, right, what that word meant and why it was offensive, you took it out of our vocabulary. And I think, you know, again, kudos to the um, the disability community who continues to actually lift this up and explain what it is, because I think right now we're on CNN talking about spastic cerebral palsy when I think a lot of folks didn't even realize what it was. I, I think this is this is where the American left is failing right? because they are speaking a language that and they are thinking about things in a way that most people in America don't even recognize. And this idea that we're going to go around and and nitpick every... I mean, Scott. they're trying to cancel Beyonce. Well, for goodness sake. Well, this, is where, this, is, this, is where, this is where the left Beyonce is falling short and, and connecting no, with the American no, no, people. Well, the, you, first of all, the, the Beehive is not going to cancel Beyonce. You hear the buzzing right now, but this is bad. But I want to get back to the evolution of language. Right? And it's just... and But explain to me how... Are you offended by this? It doesn't matter whether I'm offended by it. That's not the point. I'm able... But you understand, there is a constituency that could be offended by virtually everything. Okay, but how are you going to... Eventually, is this the goal? I have not, nothing. I'm not intending to zing you by making this about Kentucky, your home state, but literally, you have a state song where and you're comparing over, that to this. I am because over time, okay. language of think about all the terms, the R word that all of us probably used in childhood, yeah. right? That we now know is abhorrent and should never be used, and you just don't. know. Who's going to be in charge of giving us the list of the things we're not, not allowed to question, say? But but it's I think about educating I think, though. I think we're making. We're the conversation. It's about educating, though. I mean, we're having the conversation right now, and it's also about having grace, right? When folks aren't aware, and the fact is, Lizzo changed her lyrics, Beyonce changed her lyrics. I understand, you know, it, it was really frustrating to see this happen just six weeks after, you know, it, mm-hmm. Lizzo was told what happened and why it was wrong, and then you have Beyonce doing it, and I understand that frustration, but she changed it, and she apologized, and I think it sets the tone for the rest of the music industry to pay attention. You know, Scott's Christmas card this year is also the, the album of Renaissance. He's on top of a clear horse as well. <laughs> you didn't know. I've, I've exposed I you, everyone. You are. You know, Abby, <laughs> Abby Finkenauer, Elliot Williams, Scott Jennings, thank you for this conversation. It's an important one to have. That's it for us tonight. Don Lemon Tonight starts right now. Quality sleep is essential, and that's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. So you can choose what's right for you whenever you like. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature. Quiets their snores. Sleep Number does that. Sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on Sleep Number limited edition smart beds for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. Now streaming exclusively on Max. A new CNN flash talk about the album that has Nashville talking. Call Me Country. Beyonce and Nashville's Renaissance. Watch it at max.com slash callmecountry. Max subscription required.